Hi everyone, welcome to Count Me In with Dell and Deanna. Today we feature a lively and thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Susan Jane Colley, the Andrew and Pauline Delaney Professor of Mathematics at Oberlin College and Editor-in-Chief of the American Mathematical Monthly, the most widely read mathematics journal in the world. Susan grew up in New York City in Manhattan and attended a K-12 all-girls school. She earned her undergraduate and PhD degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT, in the Boston area. Her research is in enumerative geometry. She has spent her entire career on the faculty at Oberlin College, and in 2017, she became the first woman to serve as editor of the American Mathematical Monthly. I, this is Della speaking here, have learned a great deal from her as I prepare to succeed her in this role. This conversation with Susan underscores the ongoing influence of a strong educational beginning, the importance of effective communication, and the value of daily intentional efforts to recharge and reset. And if you love cats, especially if you love cats with mathematical names and nicknames, you will really enjoy this conversation. So please join us as we talk with Susan. Susan, the way we like to start is we like for you to tell us your story. I understand that. So I'm, I think I'm ready to tell you some of my story. <laughs> okay. So um, I was born and grew up in New York City in Manhattan. And I would say overall, I had a, a rather privileged childhood. I was a, a doted upon only child. Mm-hmm. I attended a private K through 12 school in Manhattan. And my classes were all female. Mm. Mm. But it gave me a really great start academically in a lot of areas. I, I might point out that the headmistress at that time um, had a PhD in biology from MIT and uh, was a cancer researcher at Sloan Kettering and, and left all of that, I think, to, um, to care for her children. Uh, she needed a different type of career at that time, and uh, she did a lot for the school. And uh, I remember her well, because besides my parents and me, she was the only person to be at both my high school and college graduations, because she was a member of the corporation, the board at uh, at MIT. Uh, but all of that I wasn't thinking about when I was six years old in first grade and trying to learn to read. Um, the school I went to, which was then the Lenox School, uh, was not especially noteworthy for math and science, but it was it was an adequate school and certainly adequate for the times, I would say. And it was small enough that I had a lot of range to pursue my interests there and had a lot of encouragement from uh, from various teachers all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think Della will appreciate this. I consider that I began my career in mathematics as a crank. <laughs> um, So, and so the memory is in my sixth grade math class, we were doing a a unit on geometry. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were being taught were some very elementary ruler and straight edge constructions. And in particular, one of the things that I remember being taught how to do was how to bisect an angle. I mean, literally, Mm -hmm. not theoretically, but with piece of paper and a compass and a straight edge, and we did it. And I thought that was pretty neat. And I remember that I was at the dinner table with my parents and I was telling my parents about this and my father just asked me, yeah, well, but can you trisect an angle? (laughs) And that was all he said to me. (laughs) So naturally I was curious and I just had at it. And after I worked at it enough, I must've stumbled on 
maybe an iterative construction that would converge. I don't really remember what I did, but it certainly was such that after a finite number of steps, it gave some very good approximations to the angles that I was mm-hmm. picking. Mm-hmm. And um, I showed it to to the class, to my teacher and my poor math teacher. And I had to remember her name, Miss Rossler. She had to deal with this. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that she was able to find an error right on the spot. In fact, I know she couldn't find an error right on the spot. So she enlisted another teacher, a high school teacher, over the lunch hour to look at my work and then to gently explain to me that my efforts at angle trisection were just doomed. And I don't have any recollection of what they said to me or how they said it to me, but I do know it was done in such a way that it really only encouraged me to learn more mathematics Mm -hmm. and try to understand what a proof is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, it made me really excited several years later when I get to what I got to see the proof of uh, the impossibility of angle trisection in an abstract algebra course. I had no idea that was how you proved it. And it was mm-hmm. pretty exciting mm-hmm. uh, to learn it that way. What was uh, the background of your parents that, that they would ask this question? Well, it was my father who asked this question. He mm-hmm. had some college. So uh, he, gosh, uh, he did not have a college degree. He had most, I think, of a college education. He was a World War II veteran, mm-hmm. and so things were interrupted. I think he was in the Army. They sent him back for some more school, but those were different times. You could have a nice long career in one job without a college education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I think the general high school education was was different then. Uh, he, he read a lot. Um, he was pretty smart, but I don't think he really knew when he asked me that question, exactly what he was asking. <laughs> setting you uh, up for a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that, that he was both setting me up for a lifetime or that he really knew exactly what why it was impossible. Uh, I My thinking was just no one had done it. Uh-huh. Not that it was provably impossible. It was probably mm-hmm. better that way. Mm-hmm. What was it like having all-girl classrooms? I mean, you wouldn't have known the other way, but I, I can't imagine as a young woman. But you girl. know... This was early mid 60s. A lot of uh, private schools in New York were single sex at the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of them were. Mm-hmm. The school did eventually go co-ed uh, by by starting with the kindergarten and, and starting with co-ed classes there at the elementary uh, classes and, and let it percolate up. So by the time I was in high school, I think up through the middle school was co-ed, but the high school you know, wasn't. So mm-hmm. I had a graduated class of 17. <laughs> Very nice. So uh, were there people along the way that made a difference in your life and uh, people who helped you to uh, inspire you to study mathematics or? Absolutely. Well, uh, one of them was this nameless teacher that was enlisted to explain why I shouldn't trisect angles. Uh, mm-hmm. she- I, I, she may have been chair of the math department at that time, but she certainly was at some point. Uh, her name was Gerda Telesnik, and I considered her to be, you know, my first real mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I stayed in contact with her all through the years until very recently when I, I'm not sure, um, not sure what's happened uh, with her. Uh, but we we have been exchanging Christmas cards for forever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the last time I saw her was about 10 or 11 years ago when I was in New York. Mm-hmm. I made sure I got to see her. 
did she see something special in you or did she, was she um, uh, active in mentoring all young women? Uh, she, I think she mentored those, I guess she, she was stuck with me is the way I think of it because after, <laughs> after sixth grade, the school let me start accelerating studies in mathematics. So I was pushed ahead to learn algebra in seventh grade. And then in eighth grade, I learned more algebra, but I could also do the geometry class. And so I ended up sort of late in middle school and throughout high school um, with a teacher to myself, essentially doing independent study. And she was the one stuck with me for the most part. Mm-hmm. So what that meant was when she had materials, she gave me materials. Uh, when it was time for calculus, the school only taught the AB calculus, and I wanted to do BC calculus. And she said, that's fine. But at a certain point, I was on my own. But by then, I was used to working on my own through problems. And so she would just check through things with me. And mm-hmm. uh, and I would ask her questions when I, when I needed to. Um, but, you know, I remember I had her twice a week uh for i don't know a 45 minute period and then uh when i had to learn calculus i think i told her that twice a week wasn't enough i needed a third meeting and she allowed me to do this (laughs) (laughs) so i I was pretty indulged (laughs) Uh you were also at such an early age establishing um a pattern of studying on your own and being comfortable learning mathematics on your own yeah but it was great later on when i've learned that Mathematics could be such a social activity as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I pivoted when I could later because uh, it's frustrating to do research and to be stuck and to be stuck by yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Much more fun mm-hmm. to be stuck with other people. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then you ended up at MIT. How did that happen? Well, um, I left high school after my junior year and went to MIT. Um, MIT at that time it all made me laugh. About that time, the undergraduate population was about 80% male. So I joked that I, you know, been in an all girls school and now I pivoted <laughs> to an all boys school. <laughs> and, you know, I thought that might bother me, but it was a culture shock, but everything was a culture shock when I, when I left home, I'd you know, never been away from home. Uh, I had, deliberately picked MIT because of its science and engineering orientation, even though I really was always planning to major in mathematics and had in mind in the back of my head becoming an academic mathematician. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, the school I had attended was strong in the arts and the humanities. It, and I thought, if for me, a liberal arts education meant getting a bigger dose of science, getting sort of that attitude by osmosis. And it was sort of deliberate that you know, I, I related reasonably well to, to all those nerdy science types. And it was the first exposure I had to people who, uh, who were that much like me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why I chose it. Um, but it was very, very different from my experience. But, you know, when you're young, I think you're also kind of oblivious to all these changes, <laughs> or at least I was. Did you feel accepted by other students? I mean, you must have been one of very few women in your class. That is always a disadvantage. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I, I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of girlfriends uh, mm-hmm. uh, at MIT, but, you know, uh, I was comfortable and hung out with other students. Mm-hmm. Did you find people there who helped you along your way? Yeah, not not well. A few 
who were very pleasant to me as undergraduates, but uh, I'll, as I'll talk later, uh, uh, my ultimately my thesis advisor mm-hmm. was a big help. Mm-hmm. But uh, and and one thing I discovered there were a lot of good lecturers that were I, I liked going to formal mathematics lectures. So I, I was out of style, but there was something remarkable. I'd never really experienced that. And it was really very moving to see a, a well put together lecture to see that kind of performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I actually enjoyed it um, mm-hmm. more than the, uh, the <laughs> what, what would be the beginning analysis course. Uh, uh, I remember that. That had a section of, oh, maybe 40 students it was known to be a tough course as it is at so many places. It was, I think it had a reputation for being the course most dropped <laughs> by students. Mm-hmm. And the person who taught my section, whose name I won't mention, well-known <laughs> uh, uh, analyst, he'd walk into class with um, one piece of paper folded into quarters in his shirt pocket. He'd pull it out, that was his lecture. He'd write something on the board turn around and say, well, anybody got any ideas? So this was kind of inquiry-based learning, but not the way I would recommend because <laughs> you, if you had an idea, you got to start talking mm-hmm. until you either said something wrong or you started hesitating too much. And then he'd say, ah, somebody else, somebody else. And pretty soon there were only two or three of us talking at all. Mm-hmm. But I really learned how to how to think and speak at the same time, <laughs> or not. Sounds very intimidating. <laughs> I know it does. And and the exams from him were all uh, take home true false exams. That was it. Wow. With hundred percent off for a problem if you get if you answered wrong, so you were not encouraged to guess, and median <laughs> was usually zero this way. Wow. So how did you gain the confidence to speak out, Susan? Again, I'm just oblivious. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, honestly, I think having, at the time, single-sex education probably was beneficial. Mm-hmm. There wasn't that undercurrent, that that social undercurrent. I mean, I, I was with, uh, um, you know, same-gender peers, and so it was easy to speak out. I spoke out then, and I just continued. <laughs> so did you just how did you end up in the phd program there did did a faculty member encourage you or did you just no, say I'm I, it here? Was, uh, what i did was a uh, fairly rare but not unheard of at mit which was to stay put um it wasn't particularly recommended uh for all the usual reasons get exposed to to more faculty or different mm-hmm. approaches um but there were a couple of reasons. I actually liked the math department at MIT. I, uh, schools like that, um, you know, top five, top 10 schools can be very unfriendly. And I, I remember thinking that for an unfriendly place, it was pretty friendly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I would go to, I, I even as an undergraduate, I would go to the T's that were for graduate students and faculty primarily. I was Undergraduates, once they found out, could go to those and people, Everybody was talking to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, postdocs were talking to faculty. Faculty would talk to graduate students and undergraduates. And it was, you know, social hours were fine. 
Uh, I'd also been involved in the math club there. And um, so I knew a lot of faculty that I hadn't had in class because of talking to them for various other more recreational purposes. And it just, I sort of wanted to stay. But another reason I really wanted to stay was that my senior year, I, I met Will, the person who was going to be my husband. Now we were, you know, and I really didn't want to leave the Boston area at that point. He was a graduate student in electrical engineering and I wanted to stay in the area if I could. Mm-hmm. That was the second reason. Did it really feel like a continuation of your undergraduate career or could you, did it feel different being in the graduate program there? It felt a bit different. Uh, I had to make a new cohort of friends of the new graduate students. Mm-hmm. and That wasn't too hard uh, uh, for me to do, I, I, partly because I knew the, knew the institution. So mm-hmm. it wasn't, it was easy for me to, to help people. Mm-hmm. From your time at MIT, could you tell us about a challenge that you had sometime and how you faced it? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So this is really uh, somewhat uncomfortable for me to talk about uh, uh, still. So uh, I got married to Will uh, the summer after my first year in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so in the following fall, I was still taking graduate courses and I was starting to think about an area to specialize in. And uh, one morning I was speaking with a professor in that particular area, but this was not someone I was thinking about as a thesis advisor, mm-hmm. uh, who said to me, well, you're a married lady now. And then he asked me if I wanted, I was planning to have children. Oh, uh, I was, was, this, was, this a fact, I was expecting that question and I had no answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this was not that, a friend of yours. This was a professor. This was a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was then told by him that, well, I was never going to be a research star. And so I should really consider a career in industry. Wow. And so I had no response. And mm-hmm. I just kind of let this drop and found this strange. But of course, it was really nagging at me. And so a few weeks later, Steve Kleiman, who was the graduate chair at the time and whom I really did not know except by sight, I'd never had in class, uh, but I knew him around the department. He called me at home and he asked if he could see me the next day. And I guessed what that was all going to be about. And I was correct. Uh, Essentially, I was told that I was really not going to be able to work in the area that I'd been contemplating. Uh, At least I couldn't do that at MIT. But I want to say at the same moment, Steve was unbelievably kind about delivering this news to me. I mean, he had this plan. He started this meeting in the morning by making us a pot of tea. Then he spent probably a half an hour saying nice things about me and expressing regret that he'd never had me in class before. Mm -hmm. Then he got to the difficult part where he had to tell me what he had to tell me. And then he arranged for one of his PhD students whom I knew and he knew I knew to essentially babysit me for a while. (laughs) Well, he knew how hard this was going to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And then he didn't really let things drop. He gave me some space for a couple of weeks or a few weeks. And then he called me in again and handed me some papers of his to read. And then that was it. I was his PhD student. Was this all because of the one professor who didn't think you were going to be serious because you were a married woman? Um, well, also, not just I wasn't going to be serious. I wasn't good enough anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, certainly it started that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Steve, I think, was trying not to foist himself upon me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also didn't want me just floundering with nothing you know, no direction. Right. Um, I mean, this was incredibly kind, the way he invested his time and Mm -hmm. and did it without pushing me one way or another. He just wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure I was talking to people and and thinking about things. Uh, And I I like to mention that my poor husband, Will, during this period was absolutely no help whatsoever (laughs) because when I started having inklings that this was all going wrong, he just, he, he said... You have it wrong. I must have misunderstood what the first professor was trying to tell me because he didn't believe anybody in such a person, in such a position would hold views like that. Right. And once he realized that he had had everything wrong and that he'd only added to to my distress, he felt terrible and was mm-hmm. did everything he could to make this up to me. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's hard. It all you finished. Out. So how did it come together? Because we know the rest of the story. You finished. I finished. Yeah. Well, uh, um, Steve was, you know, uh, very kind. Uh, um, and and I'm really happy for the way he handled things because it enabled me to be on good terms, really, with everybody at MIT instead of instead of having some, you know, conflict, some kind of conflict flagration that wouldn't have, mm-hmm. wouldn't have served anybody any purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I left uh, MIT and I joined the faculty at Oberlin and I've been there ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I happen to know that you handle, I'm just going to fast forward a second and then we can rewind. I happen to know that you handle a lot of monthly issues with real care and thought. And I wonder how much of it was born in the way Steve treated you in this moment, and I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? Steve, but also, I, I mentioned I what I said I started as a crank. I have empathy for cranks. Cranks don't realize that they're doing things that aren't going to necessarily go anywhere. And so I really try to, if not fully empathize, at least understand that no one is contacting the monthly with work that they feel is bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or inappropriate, I, sh- I should say. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard to hear that. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, I'm suddenly going to change the standards, uh, although there could be a big journal of, of crank submissions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I just think... You have to you have to um, admire people for the efforts they're making and and try to gently explain that it's just not right for us. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us some about your experience as editor of the monthly? Oh, okay. Um, you get to see a lot of math go by really fast. <laughs> 
Uh, and you have to get used to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's, I guess, the math equivalent of speed dating. You, you, so many things come in and you have to have to make a, a, an assessment fairly quickly, an initial assessment fairly quickly. Give our listeners some idea of how fast you're talking. Well, it depends on what's come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes things can come in that are very, very clearly specialized research papers that are meant for another journal. Those are the easiest and quickest because they're, it's just a complete mismatch for the monthly, which is about exposition for non-specialists, but trained non-specialists. Uh, so those are, are fine. Uh, I, can, I can decide about those in two or three minutes sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I start reading, I realize I don't know what any of these words mean. They're assuming that I know what these words mean. The bibliography suggests it's all part of a, of a research plan. It may well be publishable, but it's just not mm-hmm. for the monthly. And those are easy because I know I'm not, I'm not really judging the mathematical work as being um, unpublishable at all, mm-hmm. uh, but just wrong journal. Uh, I, I, it would be like if you were submitting to a chemistry journal, but it's a math paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are easy. Uh, harder are, are some of the amateurs who've, who are not aware of mathematical research and, and the right places to do things or to write things. And um, you have to be a little, little more careful in a response or or high school students or sometimes even middle school students who send things in and it's great that they're exploring mathematics but it's not going to not going to show up in the monthly unfortunately mm-hmm. so how many uh, publications do you receive or submissions do you receive well it's it's gone up uh, uh it's in the neighborhood of 900 to a thousand and then this last year we were up over 1100 Per year. Per year. So that's why you have to make fast decisions about a number of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or it's hard to keep up with the with the flow. What was was there anything surprising other than maybe the sheer number of, of uh, submissions, but anything surprising that you learned about mathematics or you learned about yourself through this this journey as editor? Um you really do learn who good people to turn to are not just your board, but referees and, and mm-hmm. uh, you get better and better at that. Mm-hmm. You made um, a lot of good new friends. <laughs> yes. And, and probably some non-friends. <laughs> <laughs> so I started making a list of things that now make me happy. In other words, things that now make me happy that I wasn't really thinking about seven or eight months ago, like, a really thoughtful review, no matter which way it goes, but like, and you can tell the difference between reviews, just like you can tell the difference between manuscripts. Yes. Things like that. So sort of as a PS on that question, Susan, because I know you're still teaching at Oberlin. I know you still serve on committees there. You're keeping your research up. So how do you prioritize all these things? How do I prioritize these things? Well, um, you know, there's family, there's work, and then there are cats. <laughs> and, uh, cats are first. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that I can be in a relationship where I can devote as much time as I can to my work. 
Um, for an awfully, for several years, really, the monthly has mostly come first in the sense that um, I haven't tried to do new and dramatic things in my teaching during this period because I knew I'd be pulled back to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been teaching courses I've taught before where I have materials and a routine down, which meant the pandemic was not 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 a good thing for anybody, including me. Um, I like, I mean, I still like teaching, but uh, you have to be careful because I, I don't always have uh, the same kind of time to devote to students every single day. I also learned when I'm having a bad day because something's under my skin editorially and a student has the misfortune of coming to my office hours to ask me a question. If I'm having one of those days, I usually start the exchange by saying, I'm just having one of those days. So ignore the reaction you get from me. I don't mean it. (laughs) It's about something else, not you. And that's helped. I know how I have some idea of how incredibly busy you are. How do you, I bet you have a tip for um, how to um, organize your time or just stay on top of things. Um, So, uh, in seventh grade, since you wanted stories of my life, <laughs> in seventh grade, uh, I was cast as Boxer the Horse in my school's dramatic adaptation of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this was prophetic because Boxer's motto was always work harder. And so within some limits, I, I, I have to do that. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But another thing I've done for a long, long time before the monthly is try to anticipate and try to get ahead of things at least a little bit when I can. Mm-hmm. Because when I get ahead, it really makes it easier for me to relax and to be thoughtful. So I don't, I really try hard not to procrastinate. I, I anti procrastinate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Get started on a project right away so it can marinate. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can even get some things done so that then when you're really called upon to produce, it doesn't take very long. Right. Mm-hmm. I know about two specific aspects of your life I want to ask about here. One, speaking of projects, why don't you talk to us about your book, which I think is going into the fifth edition. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Then my next thing after that is going to be a little more personal, but I'll just keep you in suspense for a second. But tell us about writing a book that goes into a fifth edition. Well, I was... This is a vector calculus course. I was teaching vector calculus and uh, I was using a book. And while there were many good things about the book, the students really didn't like it that much. And um, so I started writing notes on my own and um, it just expanded. I, they expand, I, I really started it the year right after my daughter was born, when I had my first sabbatical. And uh, it was hard to get a lot of research done. I can't imagine why an infant should interfere with that, but <laughs> sometimes it happens. But I could write bits and pieces uh, out of notes that I'd taught. And so by the end of the year, I had a few chapters of the book written. And then mm-hmm. I put it aside for a while. And then I realized I'd written, you know, maybe half a book or a third of a book. And either I had to abandon the whole thing or finish it. And I felt, well, I'd spent so much time on it, I should try to finish it. And mm-hmm. so that I took a few more years and finished it. But really, it takes multiple editions to get it into, into the 
shape one would like it. But Mm -hmm. now I think it's mature enough that it is time for somebody else to look at what it needs. Mm -hmm. And since you mentioned your daughter, my next question, I would really like for you to talk about, especially since so many students listen to this, you and Will have an RBG Marty relationship. And I just want you to talk a little bit about what that has meant to you. Um, Just, you know, during the monthly or throughout your career, once you got through that little wobble at the beginning when he couldn't believe someone would say that to you. Uh, Well, he's been wonderful. And and in fact, I urged him to talk me out of applying for the editorship. I asked a lot of people to talk me out of it. Um, He didn't. He was very frank, though. He said, you know, 10 years earlier, I would have talked you out of it because you were going to you'd be eaten alive given the way I tended to do things. But he said, now you're, you're ready to do it. So yeah, you should do it. But that's really meant that he's had to be behind me and supporting me uh, and has been. And, and as um, I've developed a routine, you know, he's let me go with it. And I think he's this way because he had a, an incredibly energetic mother and uh, I think he really understood. Uh, she, let's see, she married his father after a couple of years of college. She left school. And um, when Will and his brother were school children, I'm not sure how old, she had a family meeting and said, this isn't enough. I need to go back to school, which means you're all going to have to help. Uh, so she went back, finished college, got a master's degree and taught middle school science for 25 years. Oh, that's great. Um, she taught Will how to cook. She made the offer to both boys. Will always said, I accepted his younger brother didn't. And he's the house cook because he's a way, way better cook than I could ever hope to be. I discovered that I'm not bad at doing the dishes and he really hates doing the dishes. So, uh, it's been like that for most of almost all of our marriage, he cooks. I do all the dishes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good. I love the role of the mother-in-law in this story. I just mm-hmm. love this. Yeah, Susan, could you tell us a little bit about your research in a lay person's version? So, um, what I did my thesis in, and 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 what I have really been my my central interest is. Um, I work in enumerative algebraic geometry. And um, so algebraic geometry is what glorified analytic geometry, where you apply algebra to geometric questions. And enumerative geometry is where you're interested in counting problems involving configurations. It's not, it's not high, highly combinatorial per se, although, of course, there are aspects that have combinatorics built in. Um, and this was, I don't want to call it a backwater field, but it it was. Um, it became more prominent in the '70s when uh, William Fulton developed uh, intersection theory, uh, kind of cohomology theory. So ideas based from algebraic topology and algebra, and could solve various classical problems that had been solved, but standards of rigor were not considered to be quite up to modern modern standards. Uh, so one could revisit these issues and, and do more. Mm-hmm. 
the field then in the late 80s and early 90s um, had a, uh, an influx of ideas from string theory. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maxim Kinsevich, who won a Fields Medal, uh, developed some enumerative results based on ideas from the mathematics of string theory. Uh, and that, uh, that was fun to re- relearn things in some ways. And then uh, more recently, there's a field called tropical geometry that can bring to bear uh, uh, solutions and methods for treating, um, treating enumerative problems. But most recently, uh, I've been doing less enumerative geometry and um, more work uh, in an, <laughs> with my colleague, Gary Kennedy, uh, about 10 or 11 years ago, he was approached by a graduate student who had noticed that we had done a lot of work on a, a construction that we used for enumerative purposes that uh, seemed to have a counterpart in uh, differential geometry and even con- control theory. And what we discovered, what he discovered, was that we had there were these two parallel tracks of results growing growing separately and independently of one another. So we've been spending quite a lot of time trying to understand the other side of things mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and uh, bringing them together. Mm-hmm. So that's been, that's been interesting, but that's ongoing work. Mm-hmm. Are you able to involve students at all in this work or, or do you? Very lightly, you, very mm-hmm. lightly. I, a number of years ago, I did have some honor students that were able to, to really meaningfully do some of the early work, but, but it's, it's difficult because it's it's a very layered subject and mm-hmm. it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. I do teach a course in um, computational algebra and very beginning algebraic geometry um, based on Grobner bases and the like. That's not so much my field of research, but it's related to it. And that's been, that's been good. Mm-hmm. That's successful because there are materials that students, undergraduates can, can really latch on to. Mm-hmm. Susan, would you just take a second because I know you have a really good system in place to talk about how you have a weekly research meeting. I think this is a good model. Yeah. Um, so Gary and I, for many, 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 many years, we, we, we set aside Thursdays. That's easy enough for me to not have a class on Thursdays. And we've been getting together for a long time. I go to his institution, he goes to mine, or maybe we Zoom. And now we're working with a third colleague who is remote from both of us. So he Zooms in, even if the two of us are in the same place, or more, you know, with the pandemic, uh, uh, all three of us are remote in various places. And um, I have not been as good uh, in the last few years, I wonder why, of, of doing very much homework in between our meetings. But, uh, but at least that's something to, to, keep, to keep together with. Um, okay, before I ask you the next question, I've got to just make a great, I hope will be a great comment. You said your work is coming close to control theory now. So you know these women groups, they started women in number theory, women in topology. My favorite group are the women in control. <laughs> Susan, you could be in that group. No, no, I don't know very much control theory. It's it's remarkable that these ideas turn out to, to go in that direction. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about a time when you felt like you really belonged somewhere or a time where you felt like you didn't belong? 
Well, I think you heard the, about what I didn't belong already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That that episode is really what comes to mind. Uh, here's a much more comfortable experience. Um, so in 2015, I was invited to participate at the in the Park City Math Institute in Utah, and I uh, attended as part of the undergraduate faculty program. That was a small program that were probably, oh, there were certainly under 20 of us, probably not more than about 15. Um, I don't know that many or any of us knew one another when the program started, but in absolutely no time at all, we just completely bonded as a group. And if you know Park City, there are all these parallel sessions. We bonded so well that that people were observing us and people were jealous of us because we were just so naturally getting along and enjoying our company. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was an example of what we really belonged, mm-hmm. of when That's I really right. belonged. That's wonderful. Did they do anything to promote this in particular at Park City or it just uh, no, happened? No, just the, uh, the chemistry among us. Uh-huh. We just, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think even they were surprised how fast it worked out. Mm-hmm. So we know that you're very busy research, teaching, monthly, more than I could even list. Um, what do you do to take care of yourself? We, we have to take care of ourselves. Yes. So, so I'll start with the, with the few easy things. Um, hot baths, mm-hmm. old movies. But <laughs> I think I'm a big old movie fan. Uh, but the real change I've made, especially, is that I tend to unplug from email and the internet in the evenings as much as I possibly can. With mm-hmm. rare exception, I start very, very early in the day, but between five and six o'clock, I really shut the email off and just won't look at it till the next morning, if, if at all possible. And what that means is I have something I can look forward to every day, that there's going to come a point where I've, I've, stopped. Now that may mean I might do other work, but it's just not going to be more communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that that's been a problem for students, which is the main group of people I was worried about was I'm not there to answer questions, but I give my phone number if it's really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I just can't, I can't see more emails, more, more tasks after a certain point in the day. And I just don't even, I don't want to know they're there. Yeah. Right. Well, that's great. So since you mentioned students, what advice would you give to undergraduates now, or would you give to your undergraduate self? Well, are undergraduates generally or wanting to do mathematics? You I mean, I choose. think mathematics is a, is a fabulous major. I mean, I, uh, it's just as compelling for me as it's always been. It's versatile. You can do so many things with a mathematics major. I mean, it's certainly true that if you have some technical training in, in computer science and some other knowledge of science or economics, that's probably even better if you're not planning for an academic career. But uh, uh, mathematics, one thing I've really loved is it's a big tent. You know, the one thing the professor was wrong about is saying, you're not going to be a research star, so give it up. Well, Mm -hmm. there are many, many things you can do. Uh, I can do some research, even if I'm not going to win a Fields Medal. I'm now too old. 
Um, but I get to teach and I get to communicate a subject that I really love. Mm -hmm. I get to share it with uh, uh, peers. I get to share it with students. Um, that's, you know, that's wonderful. And um, I'm fortunate at, to be at a small enough institution that I've been able to be involved uh, with service to the institution as a whole. And that's also been over the years, very meaningful to me to have an impact, uh, a, an impact that isn't purely impact as a mathematician, but impact as a faculty member. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's my advice. You know, mm -hmm. find a field where uh, with a big tent so you can contribute in lots of different ways because you don't know how the course of your life is going to, to play out entirely. A few people can do exactly what they plan to do. And I've been able to do mostly what I plan to do. Mm -hmm. But uh, but having some flexibility uh, is, is clearly crucial. Mm -hmm. That's great. So Deanna, is this where we mentioned that the point you just made is actually the topic of one of the chapters in our book? <laughs> and it's about when St. Olaf in the, was it the 70s or the 80s, Deanna? Yeah, the late 70s, early 80s, yeah. When they made the same realization you made in their mm -hmm. liberal arts institution, and they said, you know, look, these students are looking for something to mm -hmm. major in. We need to tell them how versatile and compelling math is. Mm-hmm. Right. So, they, they need to major in something. So why not math? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Susan, oh. are you ready for the quick fire questions? Uh, do I need to put my finger on the buzzer? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That would be so fun. <laughs> future, future podcast. Mm -hmm. So the first one is mathematics is the most compelling thing intellectually that I can think to study and work on. <laughs> Wonderful. That's many blanks. <laughs> What's the last book you read that you could not put down? Oh boy. I just read the code breaker about uh, CRISPR and DNA. I, I, it's a big long book. So I did put it down, but <laughs> I went through it faster than I anticipated. <laughs> Where's a place that you really enjoy? Uh, we have a local pub in town that has been uh a really good actor through the pandemic. So I, I, I love them even more. And that's often where we're going to unwind, particularly during the pandemic, mm -hmm. once they reopened. Um, what's on your desk that would surprise us? Oh, what's on my desk that would surprise you? Oh, boy. Um, a lot of clutter. <laughs> Maybe that wouldn't surprise you, but I, I but don't think a huge amount of clutter. Me. That's why I have a background, in, uh, a virtual background, so you can't see my desk. <laughs> what sound reminds you of home, Susan? What sound reminds me of home? I don't know. I mean, uh, either a cat yelling at me. <laughs> yeah, probably a cat yelling at me really loud right now. Do you want to give a shout out to your cats before we go? Yes. Uh, um, so there are two in the household at the moment. There's Vincent Van Cat, <laughs> Vinny, and then there's Pythagoras. 
sorry. I was laughing. Vincent Van Cat, which I get. And who's the other one? Uh, Pythagoras. <laughs> so Vincent Van Cat, because when we got him, he he's a he was invited in by by Pythagoras. We Pythagoras, by the way, we call Pi because it's two math names. Um, but uh, uh, Vinny. <laughs> was invited to live with us by Pi. And at the time he was just, I, I don't know if he'd ever had an owner. It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. uh, he had horrible, horrible cases of ear mites in both ears and had scratched two bloody sores behind both ears. So his name needed to be Vincent Van Cat because it really looked like he was <laughs> taking his ears off. Um, and Pythagoras got named Pythagoras because he has a tail defect and his tail ends in a perfect right angle. <laughs> very funny all right well this has been most enjoyable susan thank you so much for meeting with us today oh thank you uh it's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you diana um i mean i've seen you of course in passing over the years but it's really nice to have had a chance to sit down of course i enjoyed talking to you della but <laughs> we talked a lot <laughs> but not like this so it's kind of fun well we should do more of this yeah without a recorder on <laughs> well that was a treat i've known susan for many years but i've never had the opportunity to chat with her this was great getting to know her a little more um, what did you learn from Ardella? Well, I always love talking with susan and i always learn something new um i was reminded again today First of all, good beginnings. That's what I kept thinking about when she talked about the Lennox School and mm -hmm. K through 12, single gender education, just good beginnings, people who cared for her there. And when she described the effective communication of uh, the professor who ultimately became her advisor at MIT, mm -hmm. just the mm -hmm. care that went into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And that sort of reminded me of just supported family and colleagues, in that case, a colleague. And she talked about the supportive role of Will. I also really was reminded about the importance of recharging. I think sometimes I think this has to be something really big and dramatic, like going to an exercise class or to the mountains. But she's recharging every night intentionally by turning off her electronics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, there are ways to recharge that don't take a really dramatic move. Mm -hmm. And of course, I loved her point near the end where she talked about the versatility, flexibility, and richness of math. It's a good reminder to us um, every single time we enter the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it really is a testament to how important those good beginnings are because look how look how impressive her career has been and how far she has come. And a lot of it is just... Uh, uh, she has had the help of of good, solid uh, beginnings, as you point out. Um, yeah, it was great getting to talk to her. So thanks to all of you. We're counting you in. This is Della and Deanna. Until next time. See you. Count Me In with Della and Deanna is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson. Victoria Robinson.